Today is one of those days, it's like a perfect storm. Everything converges at the same time. As you heard Zechariah pray, and as you well know, today is Memorial, well this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, tomorrow is Memorial Day. And today is seven weeks after Easter, plus a day, and that is what? Pentecost. Pentecost, and we also celebrate the Lord's Supper today as the family of God, family of Christ. I would like for you to stand with me for just a moment. Tomorrow, at about one o'clock, you'll take a few moments and remember those. 247 years, if you want to date it from the beginning of the revolution, over a million men and women have paid the ultimate price have not only stepped into the gap, but have paid with their blood for our freedom, which of course we know comes from Christ. But there's a continuous price that is paid for that, and for this we give thanks. So would you pray with me? Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm doth bind the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep. O oh, hear us when we pray to thee, for those in peril on air and land and sea. O Trinity of love and power, your children shield in danger's hour from rock and tempest, fire and foe. Protect them wherever they go. Thus evermore shall rise to thee glad hymns of praise from air and land and sea. Father, we give thanks for all of those who have paid the price for liberty that we so deeply cherish. We take just a moment to pause and to remember them. We also remember and pray for those families who have lost loved ones, spouses and children and fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, nephews and nieces, grandchildren some of whom never saw their loved one when they departed these, after they departed these shores. Buried in far-flung fields in France and around and Germany and Europe and all around the world, we pray for those families. And also, Father, today we pray as we heard from the hymn, those that are in danger every day, that put their lives on the line in the Army, in the Navy, in the Air Force, in the Marines, and the Coast Guard, and Merchant Marines, and the Space Force, and also for those in our community that put their lives on the line for firefighting and protection, for the law enforcement officers, for the emergency medical teams. We pray for their safety. We pray for their families who wait at home. We pray that you protect them and you guide them safely home tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's be seated. Have you ever frozen? I don't mean gotten cold. But have you ever been put in the spotlight and then frozen and not been able to do what you were supposed to do? I could not do, not, apart from the fact that I'm not t talented that way, I could never do, Alan, what you do, even if I could play the piano. Or Mariano, the organ, the cello, and all the instruments that he plays. 
Ben isn't able to be here with us today because he's not feeling well, so pray for him and his family. Uh, Mike, I couldn't step up here and do what you have done this morning. I would freeze. It would be a silent worship service. And I know some of you said that you couldn't stand up here and preach. Uh, I suspect you probably could by giving your testimony. You know, there's such a thing as stage fright. The world-renowned, famous Polish composer and pianist, Frederick Chopin, had stage fright. In all of his life, he only did 30 public performances, and he usually played just for friends there in Parisian salons, but he rejected the bigger stage. He said this, an audience intimidates me. I feel asphyxiated by its eager breath. What a metaphor. Paralyzed by its inquisitive stare, silenced by its alien faces. You know, we've all heard advice about how to get over stage fright and speaking fear. Imagine that you're people that are listening to, and you can fill in the blank, you know. Uh, One that I read the other day on the internet was, imagine that they're all third graders, you know. Well, folks, I can't do that looking at you. There's a thing called glossophobia. Uh, glossa, glossa, uh, glossa, which means tongue, and phobia, which means fear. It's, it's the fear of speaking. Mahatma Gandhi had it. His first, one of his first appearances in court, he froze after his first sentence, and his assistant had to finish his speech. Our third president, who was that? Okay, history lesson. Kids, who was our third president? Washington, Adams, Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was president for eight years, and all that eight years, he only gave two speeches because of this fear of speaking. And he spoke in such a low tone that the people could barely hear him. Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest orators that was produced by America, not just in the 19th century, but of all time. But when he was invited to speak at an 1860 Republican rally in New Jersey, He was overcome with intimidation and fear. He said, I felt nervous and unfit to speak. Winston Churchill, it's debatable whether or not he had a a stutter or a lisp. He did have a lisp. And, you know, you'd never know it, but whenever he spoke, he would come to the podium very fearful and frightened every time he delivered a speech. Can you imagine that? Somebody like Winston Churchill. Who does this remind you of in Scripture? That shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness, and God met him on the mountain, and then he said, you're going to go speak for me. And Moses said, what? I have never been eloquent. I am slow of speech, and I am slow of tongue. And what did God say to him? He said, who made man's mouth? Or or who makes a person mute or deaf or to see or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, then you go. And I, even I, will be your mouth. I will be your mouth. And I will teach you what to say. And what did Moses do? He objected still. He didn't want to do it. He had a fear of speaking. We don't know if he had a speech impediment or not. But he was slow of tongue. And this angered God. But God then relented and he gave him whom? As his mouthpiece. His brother Aaron. 
But you know what we overlooked then is after that he said, but you see what I'm going to do is I'm still going to put my words in your mouth and then you're going to put them in his mouth and I am going to be with both of your mouths and I will teach you what to do. So what, what, should, you, what should you do when you're afraid to speak for God? When you're intimidated or insecure about your in, uh, abilities or maybe you're just fearful of, of speaking in public. Well, we look at what happened at Pentecost. You know, Luke, the 24th chapter, which we read just before we uh, entered worship today, at the end of that passage, and Acts, the first chapter, said that Jesus promised that they were going to be empowered by the Spirit to be his what? His martyrs, his witnesses. And then they were going going to be given, Acts, the second chapter says, a supernatural utterance. And what was the crowd's response then at Pentecost as they began to utter, as they began to speak in other languages? Hearing them speak in their own languages and talk about the mighty deeds of God, the crowd was amazed as we sang about this morning in one of our hymns and astonished. And then near the end of that, at the end of their speaking or in the midst of their speaking, we are told that the people did not know what to think about it. They even thought that they might be what? They might be drunk. All of this provided, what? An opportunity to present the gospel. And you see, God then did this by speaking through Peter and the apostles at at Pentecost. Peter took his stand, this fisherman. That was his trade. Stands before the crowd, stands in Jerusalem, stands before thousands of people, stands before the religious leaders. He took his stand and he preached the pure gospel. And what did he preach? Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of what? doesn't say salvation, but it means that. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. After healing the lame beggar then, the crowds gathered again, and they were amazed. And Peter addressed their amazement in his second sermon. And again, he said, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped clean in order that times of refreshing, and I think that means then the coming of the Holy Spirit, may come from the presence of the Lord. There were confrontations between the apostles, disciples, not just the 12, but the 120, and the officials in Acts 4 and 5. They were arrested. They were imprisoned. They were delivered to the Sanhedrin. Peter and John were. And what was the question that they asked? They said, by what power or in which name have you done this? That is, heal this lame beggar at the gate. Beautiful. Hmm. And what was their response? By the name of Jesus the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. That's the name. In the next incident... In the next incident, with all of the apostles uh, gathered at the Sanhedrin, they were told, actually on two occasions, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. With Peter and John, Peter and John's response then was, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking what we have seen, what we have witnessed, and what we have heard. 
And in the second occasion, when they brought all of the apostles in Acts, the, the fifth chapter, and they once again told them that they must stop. Don't you know, we gave you very clear directions. We gave you very strict orders to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And stop filling Jerusalem with all those teachings. And what was their response? We must obey whom? God rather than men. You see, the reason for this is we are witnesses. We are martyrs of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Not just we, but the Holy Spirit is a witness whom God has given to the, those of us who obey him. So it is not us, just us speaking. You see what they're saying. It is also the Holy Spirit speaking. Now, Jesus had warned them ahead of time that all of this was going to happen. He had said, this will happen to you. And that's the text for this morning. The text for Pentecost today comes out of Mark, the 13th chapter. And in the ninth verse, he says this, be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. You see, the gospel must be preached to all nations. And when they do arrest you, and when they do hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say what is it, whatever is given to you at that hour, at that time. For you see, it is not you who are speaking, but it is the Holy Spirit. You see, the context for this passage, it's Tuesday, Passion Week, the third day that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. It's at the end of that longest recorded day of ministry that we talked about from Mark last week, and he has just spoken about the Buddha's might. And they come to the temple, and the disciples marvel at the temple, and he tells you, well, you know what? Not one stone here is going to be left on another. It's going to be destroyed. And then Peter, James, and John, and then another's added to the inner circle, Andrew. They ask him, Lord, tell us about these things that are going to happen. And he tells them about the interim prophecy of what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and then finally the end time prophecy. And it's in the middle of that passage that he says these things. Now stop and think about what he has said. You're going, to be, you're going to stand before what? Governors and kings. And you're going to be witnesses to them on my behalf. What happens three days later? Before whom does Jesus stand? He stands before the governor, Pilate, and he stands before Herod Antipas, the king. Jesus never asked his disciples. Jesus does not ask you as a disciple to do something that he never did. And he gave witness three days later. The parallel passages for this are in Luke, the 21st chapter, and it pretty much mirrors what Mark says. Uh, it, it's essentially the same thing. Matthew, though, is a little bit different. Matthew was not during the Passion Week. Matthew is found in the 10th chapter when Jesus is sending them out to the villages and towns there in Galilee, and he's giving them instructions and warning them that it's going to be dangerous for them. And in that passage, there's only one little bit that we find later in a parallel passage in Matthew 24. When Jesus talks about the end times in Matthew 24, he doesn't say this except to say that they will deliver you over, the, over to the tribulation, and he goes on to say then, and they will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for me. Let me give a little bit of a, further, a fuller reading of this. Let me put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together 
and it would go something like this. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And then Luke adds this, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. And Matthew says not just a testimony to them, but also to the Gentiles. You see, the gospel must be preached to all nations. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say. Luke adds this, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. And then we pick up with Mark. But say whatever is given to you at that time and that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. Matthew's version is a little different. He says, it is the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. And Luke is yet a little bit different. Jesus says, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So let's take a look at this passage for a moment. A couple or three things I want us to see. I think the first is adversity will come. Adversity will come if you're a witness for Christ. Adversity will come, but that adversity is an opportunity. Secondly, when that happens, don't worry. Be happy. No, don't worry. Trust God, and you will be blessed. You will be happy. Don't worry. Trust God. And, and then as you speak, it's not you speaking. Let God speak through you. So let's take a look at those three points. The first one, adversity brings opportunity. Persecution and rejection were going to come as Christ's witnesses. He says, be on your guard. Warning, it literally means look to yourselves. It means watch out. It's, a, it's coming, folks. It's, it's not doubtful. Persecution and suffering is coming. And folks, in our world today, as secure and comfortable as Christians have been for many years, I think it's very obvious that suffering and maybe even, I don't want to overstate it, but maybe even persecution, certainly ridicule comes to those who share the testimony of Christ. In all kinds of situations, everywhere, he says, there's going to be the legal situation in courts, there's going to be the religious situation in the synagogues, and wherever the gospel is preached, around the globe, to all the Gentile nations, even beyond Jerusalem. Well, that's what Jesus has said. It's going to begin in Jerusalem, it's going to go to Judea, it's going to go to Samaria, and then it's going to go to the what? Uttermost parts of the world. Wherever the gospel is preached, this suffering and persecution is going to come. And all kinds of intense opposition. You're going to be delivered to the courts. What that means is you're going to be arrested. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be prosecuted, and then as a result, probably punished. That's what happened to Peter and John in Acts 4. It's what happened to the apostles in Acts 5. And then Peter was put in prison in Acts 12. You're going to be flogged scourged by the religious officials in the synagogues. Paul gives evidence of this in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter. He said, I suffered many imprisonments, countless scourgings. Five times I was whipped with 39 lashes and three times with rods. You're going to stand before governors and kings. What is that about? You're going to stand before somebody that can issue a summary verdict. At his word, you can be executed. It's not going to be before a tribunal. You're going to stand before someone that has that kind of power. And Luke tells us that you're going to be hated and even killed. Each one of these is an opportunity. Each one of these provides an opportunity to give testimony. The, the, the obvious implication from Mark 
as a testimony to them, it refers back then to the governors and kings. You're going to stand as a, a witness and give testimony, and you know that the root word for that is martyr. The obvious mode is you're going to be standing before officials like governors and kings. But every one of those elements of suffering you see also is an opportunity to witness. When you're beaten, when you're prosecuted, when, when people hate you, when they ridicule you, or when you're threatened with death. Each one of these is an opportunity. And that's why the Lucan passage is so important, because the modern version of it, the modern translation, reads like this. It will lead to an opportunity not a problem, not a difficulty. It'll lead to an opportunity for your testimony for the sake of Jesus. What does that mean? Literally, he's talking about for my sake, for the sake of the person of Jesus. But in Luke's version, he says, for my name's sake, for the sake of the reputation of Jesus. So when we share the gospel, we're not only talking about Jesus himself, we're talking about the name of Jesus, and we're talking about the, the reputation. And why is that so important? Because the name of Jesus in the gospel is central. You see, the name of Jesus is the key to forgiveness. What did Peter say? Repent, each one of you, and be baptized, not just generally, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. The name of Jesus is key to salvation. They said, what shall we do when their hearts were pricked and they were convicted because they had killed the Lord? What shall we do? And Peter said, do what? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of Jesus, we know, is the exclusive means of salvation, and the pagan world in that day rejected that exclusivity. No, there are many paths, you see, to salvation. And today, in a postmodern world, there are many that would say there are many ways to be saved. But clearly, the Scripture says it is only in the name of Jesus and there is salvation in no one else, Acts the fourth chapter says, and you know it well. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given unto men whereby we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. You see, it's defending the name and the reputation of the one who then delivered the gospel. His name was the reason for the opposition. His name was the reason for the suffering. The apostles had performed this great miracle, and people were astounded, and they were performing many other miracles. Peter walked through the streets, and his shadow then was cast upon people, and they were healed. It was amazing. But it wasn't so much the miracles. They, they were jealous about the miracles. The Sanhedrin, it says literally, the religious leaders were jealous about all this. But the real problem was that they were speaking and preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. So how did the disciples respond to that? Shut up. Don't teach, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Don't you know that we gave you strict orders? And they walked away then in Acts, the fifth chapter. And they went away from the presence of the council rejoicing. Why did they rejoice? They weren't rejoicing about the miracles. They, they were rejoicing about the opportunity to share the gospel. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to what? Preach the gospel? No. Worthy to suffer for his name. And every day then in the temple, they went back to the temple, folks. And from house to house, they did what? They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Friends, when adversity comes, and it will, and it may be in small ways, uncomfortable ways, it may be ridicule, it may be persecution. When adversity comes, look at it this way, it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to witness for Christ. 
for him as a person and the gospel, but for his name that has saving power. Second point, don't worry. Don't worry. Trust God. You see, there are two aspects of this worry, I think, that Mark is talking about, that Jesus said. One is about the content of what we say. Sometimes when we feel like we should witness, we feel inadequate. We feel ineffective. Sometimes we don't feel like we're up to the task. We might be outwitted by the opponent or by the person that's asking the questions. We might be defeated by their brilliance. You know, I'm, I'm not a good speaker like Moses said. Sometimes it's, it's the content and the delivery. But sometimes, folks, it's worrying about the effects on us personally. Knowing that it may lead to our intimidation, it may draw the spotlight to us, it may lead to suffering for witness, ridicule, persecution. I think this is the obvious meaning in this passage. When they arrest you and hand you over, it's in that context. Don't worry. The solution is very clear. In Matthew and Mark, there are two actions that are given, and we read those. Do not worry beforehand, number one, what you're going to say. And then secondly, just say what is given to you that time. Luke adds a bit of a different emphasis. Listen again to what Luke says. So make up your minds. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. So you put these together, the synoptics all together, and I think there are four principles that are very clear. Number one, you, need, you do need to get ready. Prepare. Prepare yourselves. Secondly, don't worry beforehand. Thirdly, and I derive this, I, I think it's implied, don't prefabricate a set defense. And then finally, don't focus on defending yourselves. Why do I say that? N number one, get ready. This is about getting yourself ready. It's about preparing ourselves. Because Luke says, make up your minds. Make a proactive decision long before you're put into that situation, right here sitting in the pew, knowing that sometime this week, maybe next week, or sometime in the future, you're going to be called a witness for Christ. Make up your mind right now. That's what he's saying beforehand. Before you face the opposition, be ready and watch out. It's a coming. Secondly, don't worry beforehand implies two things. Don't rely on yourselves. It's not your strength. Trust God. We cannot anticipate the future situations. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God does. If you're going to have an intersecting point on Wednesday of this week where somebody then offers you an opportunity to witness to them, you don't know about it yet, but God does, and he prepares the way. So don't rely on yourself. Trust in him. Don't prefabricate a set defense. Now, this is a little, little difficult, I think. What, what I mean by that is, you know, I, I get it. We, we have pre-planned scripts in our minds. You know what I'm talking about. We, we have thought through ahead of time what we're going to say. There, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, nothing wrong, and it's good to memorize scripture. But sometimes what we do is we come across rather artificial. You know what I'm saying? They ask us a question, and, and, and they watch us, and they can see the robot working, you know? I've got this pre-planned script. You see, there's security in that pre-planned script. There's nothing wrong with memorizing Scripture. There's nothing wrong with having an idea. But, folks, sometimes when it's all a pre-planned script, guess what happens when they interrupt and ask the question that we can't answer? You see, it comes across rather artificially. I think what he's saying is don't worry so much about the script. You see, sometimes when we do that, we rely on human reason. And we don't rely on the power of God. And Paul said, I didn't come to you with eloquent words. I didn't come to you with some pre-planned script. 
I didn't come to you with worldly philosophy. I came to you to know Christ and Him crucified. And as a result, my purpose was so that you might know the power of God. As I spoke to you, you knew the power of God because I let the power of God speak through me. They think there's a fourth thing. Don't focus on defending yourselves. This is about the gospel, folks. You know, you read that passage from Luke and, you know, don't prepare. Well, okay. Prepare what? To defend yourselves. This is about the gospel. It's about the person of Christ. It's not about us. God will defend you. God will defend me if we witness for him. We do not need to rely on our ingenuity and our personal strengths to do it. We rely on him. And you know what, folks? We're not guaranteed that we won't suffer. I'm not saying that he's going to prevent suffering. So when we do this, we need not to be so worried about defending ourselves. In fact, what we need to do is we need to be willing to be vulnerable and expose ourselves. What this does not mean is it doesn't mean that we should not work to get ready. Prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves by knowing the Word of God. Prepare yourselves by walking with Christ. We prepare ourselves by growing spiritually and developing a deep well of spiritual formation and relying on God. And then what will happen is the Holy Spirit will draw from that well and He will use what's there. God is not going to use an empty well. We had a member of our church in England. I've shared this before. Her name was Kitty Colburn. We went by her house or cottage to have tea one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon. We lived about 20 miles away. And I said to Miss Kitty, Miss Kitty, I've got to leave. I've got to go get my notes and do some preparing for preaching. And I got to drive back the 20 miles this evening. She just looked at me. She says, Pastor, any Christian ought to be able to stand up and talk about their faith for 45 minutes. You don't need to go home and do that. Well, there's some truth to that. Any Christian that has a well, God should be able to draw from it. Jesus is a good example of that. Best example. He was uneducated, the rabbis observed, the teachers observed. He wasn't an adherent of any rabbi's school, but they observed that he was learned. And what that means is that he knew the scriptures. Jesus, I'm sure, went to the synagogue all the time in Nazareth. At the age of 12, he was talking to the scribes. He was talking to the teachers in the temple. And they were what? They were amazed at his questions and his understanding and his answers. And we know that he increased in what? Wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He spoke with authority because he knew the scripture, an authority beyond that of the scribes. And he amazed everyone. He knew the scripture thoroughly. He had studied it and he used it regularly and he knew how to interpret it properly. He knew the rabbinical code. So when he chastises the Pharisees and Matthew about being whitewashed sepulchers, he knew their code. You see, he, was, he had prepared himself. And I think that's the key. Not necessarily preparing a pre-planned script, but prepare yourselves. Look at, look, at, um, look at the apostles. They did the same thing, like Jesus. You see, the key with Jesus was the preparation of himself, and the key to that was his relationship with the Father. His relationship with the Father and his reliance on him. You know... It was at one of the feasts in John, the seventh chapter. And it was in the middle of the feast. Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews, the scripture says, were astonished, saying, how does this man, how has he become learned? 
How does he know the scriptures is what they were saying. You see, he's never been educated. He's never studied in a rabbi's school. And what was Jesus' answer? Oh, I studied in the synagogue and I didn't know. What was his answer? He said, Jesus answered them and he said, my teaching is not mine. My teaching is his who sent me. It was his reliance on the Father and his relationship with the Father. And look at the apostles. You know, we talked about Peter and John. They looked at them and they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, but the whole Sanhedrin was amazed. And then they began to understand because he had been with Jesus. Hmm. Peter and John, I'm sure, though they were fishermen, their dad who was a fisherman, family went to the synagogue there in Capernaum, and I'm sure that they probably studied the scripture regularly, just like every, every Jewish boy did. They learned the Shema. You know, friends, we've got kids every week on Wednesday evening that do Bible memorization on Sunday evening. They do Bible drills. They do mission friends. They study about missions. What's happening there? There's a spiritual formation. There is a well that is being formed. That's what was happening to Peter and John. This offering plate, what's that, Gail? No, it's bigger than a nickel. It's a quarter. It's two bits. Now, you kids don't know what two bits is. Two bits, four bits, six bits, a dollar. Okay. Quarter. Four quarters in this offering plate. I know who put them in there. You don't. I've got inside knowledge. Okay. Who put them in there? I'm not going to name names because I don't want to embarrass the person, but a little child that sits near the back. Every week, she puts in a dollar as offering to God. What's going on there, folks? How essential is that one dollar to our ministry? Let me tell you, it's vital, folks. How much of the electric bill is it going to pay? Not a lot. But you see, there is an investment in a life. The well is being filled. So when we teach our children, like Peter and John were being taught in the synagogue, there was a well that was being developed. And then what happened on Pentecost, God had filled Peter with the Holy Spirit, and he drew from that well, and he preached with power. You see, that's what it's talking about, preparing ourselves. When adversity comes, use it as an opportunity to witness And when you witness, don't worry about what you're going to say. Let God draw from that well. Last point. Let God speak through you. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Actually, this is a Trinitarian statement. You know it. Because we read it from the three different passages. Mark says that it is the Spirit that gives you words. Matthew says that it is the Spirit of the Father who speaks through you. And Jesus then said in Luke, I, Jesus, will give you utterance and wisdom. And folks, that will certainly be fulfilled. You can trust that. If you're a witness for Jesus Christ, you can trust that he will give you utterance and witness if you pray for it. Why? Because he says this, the gospel must be preached to all nations. You're the witnesses, and that must happen. You must receive it. We are commanded to go into all the globe and to preach the gospel to all creations. You know, all creation. Some folks say this is a post-millennial statement. What does that mean? Well, the gospel must first be preached 
And then the assumption is then the kingdom will have been brought in and then Jesus will return. Folks, I'm, I'm not about post-millennialism or premillennialism or amillennialism or whatever kind. That's not the point. This is not an eschatological statement. This is very simply a mandate for us to do what? To take the gospel to all the world, it must first happen. It is, a, it is a first importance. And he will give you utterance. He will give you not just words, but utterance. That is a technical term that is used for prophetic speaking. Moses and Aaron uttered the words of God, the prophets of the Old Testament. They opened their mouths and the holy prophets uttered the word of God. The apostles on several instances in the New Testament, they opened their mouths and they uttered God's word. But the other meaning there is not just utterance, it means the edge of a sword. He will give you the word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword. He will give you the word of God to speak, and especially if you memorize it. Kids, don't go to Bible drill unprepared, expecting God to give you the words to speak. What you do is you study, you memorize, and then he draws it out of you. And it is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces to the bone. It pierces and divides the soul and the spirit. It reveals truth and all falsehood. That's what he will do. That is God's gift. He will give you wisdom that is beyond human intelligence. It's super human intelligence. It is God's wisdom. It is the divine intelligence that undergirds all of reality. He will give you an understanding of that. It doesn't mean you'll know everything, but it does mean that you'll know spiritual things beyond what the world understands. And God then will speak his indisputable truth through you. Luke says it will be irresistible and it will be irrefutable. What it literally means is the world cannot stand, cannot resist it. It can't speak against it. The Sanhedrin could not give an answer to the miracle that Peter and John had performed. You see, they could not resist it. They could not refute. They could not stand against it. They could not withstand. When Stephen stood before the synagogue and he gave his testimony to the Jews, it says that they were unable to refute. They were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. God will give that to you. He will give you utterance and wisdom. It doesn't mean that the opponents won't argue against you. It doesn't mean they won't come up with all kinds of fine-sounding human reason. It doesn't mean they won't reject your arguments. Many of them will. What it does mean is this. God's Word, if you've appropriated it and you have put it in your heart, and if you really believe it and you preach and you teach and you witness in the name of Jesus, what you're doing is you're dealing with truth that only God knows as ultimate reality. The world does not know it. It does not understand it. But it's infallibly true. And it's compelling. And it's convincing. And we have hope that if a person is open-minded when they listen, if they're truly objective and not biased, that that word is so compelling and convincing that they will be converted. When people then object to God's truth, they're simply exposing their own ignorance and a worldly kind of foolishness. Folks, we have nothing to fear when we utter the Word of God and we share His wisdom. Philippians said this to the, uh, Paul said this to the Philippians, I hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and that you are not to be alarmed by any of your opponents, for you see it as a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. Let me close with this. The Holy Spirit, friends, inhabits you and me if we're believers, if we're witnesses. 
And it is the Holy Spirit that emboldens you. It is the Holy Spirit that prepares you. It is the Holy Spirit that will draw out the words at the right time. Because he is a spirit of truth that teaches you all things. He is a helper that walks alongside you and abides with you because Jesus promised that he would not leave you as an orphan. It is the Holy Spirit that energizes you and enables you to do far beyond what you ever hope or think you could because he is the power that is in you. He is the Holy Spirit that when the apostles then left that council and Acts the fifth chapter, when all of them after that second occasion left the council, they went and they went to a home probably. They went to a small gathering and what did they do? They prayed. They prayed for confidence. They prayed not to be intimidated. And you know what happened when they finished the prayer. The building shook, the ground shook. The Holy Spirit empowered them and they went out and they spoke boldly and they did not stop friends when adversity comes use it as an opportunity to witness when you witness don't worry trust God and when you witness and you trust God let the spirit speak through you let him draw from that well of spiritual formation over all the many years that he has walked with you and he will give you the confidence to speak what he wants let's pray Holy Spirit, breathe on us today and make our hearts clean. Let the sunshine fill our inmost parts and let there not be a cloud in between. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. Breathe on us. Teach us in words of living flame what Christ would have us do. Holy Spirit, breathe on us and fill us with your power divine. Kindle a flame of love and zeal within this heart of mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.